Jeremiah 8.20, New King James Version. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. In the words of Jeremiah of himself, for the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Then he asks these questions. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? And I would like to assure you today from the word of God that there is a cure. There is a cure. If you believe that, say amen. Please be seated. On Wednesday evening, this past Wednesday, I taught on making the most of summer. If you are not here, and especially if you're a parent, I recommend you go back and watch that message or listen to the podcast because I gave a lot of ideas shared with us by parents of children and teenagers in our church. My text was Jeremiah 8 and 20. The harvest has passed. The summer is ended and we are not saved. What I spoke about was the importance of understanding the seasons of life. That summer to them was a season that started with the end of the winter rains. It went through the harvest and began with the rains again. They really enjoyed more like two seasons than the four we celebrate in the northern hemisphere in North America. Summer was a window of opportunity. It opened and it closed. And during the summer, seeds that had been planted, germinated, sprouted, grew into maturity, and then were harvested before the rain started. Jeremiah used this season of summer to talk about the spiritual opportunity that the people of Judah, that southern kingdom of Israel, had. And that season was coming to a close. And if they were not saved by then, they would go into captivity, into Babylon. And 70 years, they would be kept there as slaves of sorts, not always slaves. And their foolish imagination, though, the people of Judah kept telling themselves that this season will go on forever. That God is merciful. That judgment will never come. That we can repent when we get ready. It's on our timetable, not on God's timetable. And Jeremiah saw this. He spoke about it. It is regretful to say that the summer is ended. The harvest is over and we are not saved. Jeremiah, as a prophet of God, as a fellow person, a fellow Jew, he felt the pain of the people of his nation. In verse 21, he said, For the hurt of the daughter of my people... When he says the daughter of my people, it's just a euphemism to say my people. But he kind of makes it more personal, like this girl, this little girl. I'm hurting for my people. He said, I hurt for them. I am mourning their spiritual condition. Astonishment has taken hold of me. I take their wound personally. I feel their pain. I grieve with them over their spiritual condition. There was a time when Jeremiah got tired of preaching and trying to reach his people. He said, I decided to stop talking about it. And the more I held it in, Jeremiah said that it was like fire 
shut up in my bones. And I couldn't keep it in any longer. And I had to say what God was saying to me. Judgment was coming on Judah. And it seemed avoidable at this stage in the entire decline of the moral condition of Judah. Later, Jeremiah will speak of their wound as being incurable. But certainly now it's not. So then in Jeremiah 8.22, he asks these questions. The first one first. Is there no balm in Gilead? Now Gilead was part of Israel. It was a rugged mountainous region that lay on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And it was an agricultural area among the many things they grew in Gilead was balsam trees. And from the balsam tree, they would extract the sap and they would make a balm. They would make something that could be put in a compress on a wound in a plaster of sorts. Balm is a fragrant ointment, a preparation used to heal or to soothe a wound. It's interesting when I was thinking about balm in the Bible, but all the way back in Genesis 37, when Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit, decided not to kill him, were trying to figure out what to do, they looked up and there was a band of Ishmaelite merchants coming out of the land of Gilead. And they had with their camels spicery and balm and myrrh to take it down to Egypt. Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave, and those men took him down there. But all the way back there, hundreds of years before Jeremiah would write, balm was a healing agent. And Jeremiah asked this rhetorical question. Has, ba has Gilead run out of balm? Is there no more balm in Gilead? I see that you're still sick. Are you still sick because there's no medicine to make you better? Of course, the implication is that there is balm in Gilead. There is a healing power. There is a cure. And then Jeremiah asked the second question in Jeremiah 8.22. Is there no physician there in Gilead? Now, less is known about the medical practices in Gilead. From my research, I didn't discover that there were lots of hospitals and clinics and doctor's offices in Gilead. But you would be implied by what Jeremiah said that there's a cure there and there's care there. There's doctors. There are physicians in Gilead. So there's balm and there's a doctor and then Jeremiah asks, the third question. I'll read it again in Jeremiah 8.22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? If there is a medicine and there is a doctor, why are you still sick? It's not for a lack of a cure. It's not for lack of care. It must be that you've refused treatment, that you've not allowed the balm to heal you, that you've not allowed the physician to care for you. I was thinking about this and, and reading some medical reports, and I know there are lots of caveats to scientific research and medical reports, but I read that in the United States, 
about 92,000 people each year die prematurely from heart disease when they, their lives could have been prolonged. It wasn't that they couldn't be treated. They didn't get treated. They ignored the numbness in their arm. They ignored the chest pains. They ignored the hypertension and elevated blood pressure. There were things pointing to them that you need to get a cure, that you need to get some care. But they looked the other way, whistled in the dark, pretended they were okay, and they died when they could have lived. 84,500 people, they say, die from cancer prematurely when they could have lived. 17,000 people died prematurely from strokes when they could have lived if they would have applied the cure to their life. How many people die of neglect? And the writer of Hebrews would say that we would not be saved if we neglect so great a salvation. So I want to tell you today from the Old Testament frame of reference that for the people of Judah, there was a cure, there was care, there was balm, there was a physician, but they continued in their sinful condition. They did not apply the balm. They did not allow the physician who would have been God himself to heal them and their sin worsened. The moral decline deepened and they went into captivity. I wonder why, why would people continue to be sick when they could be well? Why would you choose death rather than life? Why would you choose the illness rather than the cure? I thought, well, some people stay sick out of fear. They're afraid of what the doctor is going to find. They're afraid of the doctor. They have what is called white coat syndrome. When the doctor walks in, their blood pressure goes up. And they're afraid to go to the doctor. There are some people that perhaps remain sick out of pride. They don't want to admit that they have a problem, that they need help, that they are sick, whether it is physical, emotional, psychological, or spiritual. They just are too proud to humble themselves and say, I need you to help me. I am hurting. I am sick. I'm in trouble, and I need help. But pride keeps a lot of people from accepting the cure. I've said before that in my mind, the greatest revival in America should be in the nursing homes and geriatric facilities of America. But when people have spent their lifetime saying no to God, either out of fear or pride, when they get old and they're facing death, something inside of them will not allow themselves to humble themselves to God and seek a solution. Some people stay sick out of pride. Other people, I think, continue to be sick because of distrust. They had a bad experience. They heard about a malpractice suit. They knew that somebody went to the doctor and it didn't work out very well. I've seen it in the church. People had a bad experience. There was a hypocrite in the church. The church disappointed them. The church wasn't perfect. The pastor didn't shake their hand. It was too cold, too hot. The sound was too loud or too quiet. Never a problem here. But they got these excuses 
and it's developed into distrust. I don't trust the cure. I'm not going to go to the doctor. I don't believe in that anymore. So they would rather go on in their sickness until their wound becomes incurable, until their condition becomes terminal, and they die spiritually, they die emotionally, they die physically, because they simply do not have confidence in the care. So I am here today to tell you what Jeremiah told Judah, that there is a cure. There is help for you today in the spirit of the Lord, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the church, and in the Lord himself. Amen. There is a cure for the national sin that is eating away at America. There is a cure for what is happening in our country that is dividing families and killing our culture. There is a cure. There is help. In our country, we desperately, we desperately need the spiritual balm of Gilead. And we desperately need the intervention of the great physician. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We need a national revival, a worldwide revival. But every national revival begins with a personal revival. Perhaps you've heard the story about a person who said, if you want a revival in your home or your church or your nation, you should start by getting in a room by yourself and drawing a circle around yourself and praying, God, send a revival in this circle. And the saying is, when God gives you a revival in your life, when God gives you a revival in that circle, then you have the basis for a revival somewhere else. But rather than point our finger at someone else that needs a revival, why not look in the mirror and say, I'm the one. It's me. It's me. It's me. Oh, Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I need a revival. Praise God. Great awakenings have founders. The great awakening of the 1730s in America has many people behind it pastors and churches who are praying but Jonathan Edwards is called the father of the great awakening in the 1730s churches saw spurts of revival he preached his most famous sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God on July 8 1741 in Enfield Connecticut in a monotone voice he read from a script under anointing as he spoke people began wailing and crying and screeching loudly. Frequently, Edwards would tell them to please quiet down and allow him to finish his sermon. But there is a catalyst. There is a person that said, God, we need a revival. And let it begin in me. I am preaching that there is a cure today for the sin of our world. There is a cure for the problems in our families. It's time to draw a circle and have a revival in your life that will spread outside that circle. There is a cure, but it involves a choice to accept the cure and allow the physician, Jesus Christ, in your house. Amen. And that cure begins, and that openness begins when you repent of your sins. Now, I know repentance is our first step toward God, but it should always be a staple in the life of a Christian. That we should always keep repentance close to us. 
And if you sin, confess your sins and repent. And if you will, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Repentance is a change of mind. It is triggered by godly sorrow or contrition. But it is not equal to sorrow or regret or a feeling of pain. Repentance is a turn. The word in the Bible is metanoia, a change of mind. It literally means an about face from the direction you're going now. You change your mind about sin, yourself, and God. And you determine to turn your life over to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is what repentance is. That's why in the Old Testament, the most quoted 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It is our humbling, it is our repenting that releases the power of God into our lives. Proverbs says, He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy, have mercy. So it is the trigger of repentance, of turning from our sins and turning to God that releases the power of God into our lives to heal us, to forgive us, to deliver us. The Old Testament prophets preach repentance over and over to sinful people. John the Baptist came bridging the Old Testament with the New Testament and John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. He called the people to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, he said repentance is not just words. Repentance is action. Repentance is a change. Repentance is a difference that is happening in your life because you have turned your back on sin and you're walking toward God. John the Baptist said, if you do not repent, then there is an axe that is laid to the root of the tree. And every tree that does not bring forth good fruits of repentance, he would mean, is cut down and thrown into the fire. If we have a cure in our lives, we've got to turn from our sins and open our hearts so that God would come to us. Amen. 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 We need a revival of repentance, of becoming thoroughly right with God, that we now allow no sin to reside in our life. Not a small sin, not a big sin, not a justified sin, not a word you've spoken, not a thought you've had, not an action you've taken, not an attitude you've harbored. We need to thoroughly repent before God and say, Lord, I desperately need you to forgive me of my sins. Oh, God. Oh, Lord, keep me from presumptuous sin. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, God, cleanse me from every sin. Cleanse me from ambition. Cleanse me from bitterness. Cleanse me, God, at every level of my life. Paul said in the times past, God winked at religious ignorance. But now... To the Athenians, to pagan Athenians, he said, said this in Acts 17. But now God commands all men everywhere to repent. Amen. Repentance starts with the heart, but it changes every part of us. Repentance is asking Jesus Christ to take away our sins. John wrote that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves in the truth 
is not in us, but this is where it is in my nose. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I thank God for every good and godly person in our church. But what heaven rejoices over is one sinner that repents. Jesus said the whole, the healthy, do not need a physician. I think he was being facetious because the people who pretended they were whole and pretended they were religious and pretended they were righteous needed forgiveness just as much as the people they thought were bad. There are people that died in the collapse of a tower and they thought maybe there was something wrong with those 18 people. But Jesus said, I want to tell you that except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You may think you're better than the person who died in a catastrophe, but we all need repentance in our lives. Amen. God, help us never be like the religious expert, the Pharisee, a really strict person that went to church in the temple. And he prayed, the Bible says, thus within himself. God, I'm really glad that I'm not like other men. He looked across the church and he saw a tax collector, a publican. He knew what publicans were alleged to be. That they cheated Rome, they cheated the people. They accepted bribes, they were crooked people generally. Publican in the New Testament, a tax collector is considered to be a sinner. They're tossed in the same basket with sinners, publicans and sinners. He looks across at the publican and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like that guy. He knew what that guy did. You know, some people call him a scumbag. He's a dirty, low-down tax collector. Then he started telling God how good he was. I fast tithe twice a week. I pay tithes on all of everything I've got, Lord. I thank you that I'm such a good person, Lord. I am spiritually whole. And no words of repentance would ever come out of my mouth because certainly they're not needed. But Jesus, when he told about those two men, he said, I will tell you truly that that man that was over there, that publican, the Bible said he would not even lift his head. He beat on his chest. His words were, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man that said, God, have mercy on me. He went home forgiven. He went home with mercy. But that man who thought he was too good to repent, he went home. His sins were not taken away. He was not justified. Now I will say to us today, that unless we repent, we will die in our sins. Unless America repents, there will be the demise of a nation. Amen. I want to see heaven rejoice because my heart has been made right with God. We all know, most of us Pentecostals know, repentance was not just a message of the Old Testament. Or John the Baptist or in the ministry of Jesus. But the apostles preached this message on the day of Pentecost. In the con concise plan of salvation, the Apostle Peter in Acts 2.38 said, Then Peter said unto them, Repent. Change your mind. You're guilty of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You're guilty of rejecting the Messiah. So you need to repent and be baptized. They go together. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins, not merely an outward sign of an inward work, but baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is for the remission of sins. It brings about the remission of sins when combined with repentance. Amen. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall, promise, you shall receive the gift 
of the Holy Ghost. Would you just say repentance? I think you've got it. And in a little while we're going to do it. And I trust you're praying like that now if you need to. But there's another side to the equation of the cure. There is a cure. And repentance is part of that cure. But there is a plague among people. People who have been abused, hurt, wounded, disappointed, generally done wrong. And that plague is unforgiveness. It is not asking God to forgive you of sins that you have committed. It is asking, is releasing a person who has wronged you from that wrong. Forgiveness is making sure that you do not stand in the place of God holding someone's sins against you. Against them rather. Because of the way they've wronged you. But forgiveness releases the offender. Forgiveness lets go of the offense. Amen. Mark Twain said that hatred corrodes the container it is carried in. Anger is an acid, he said, that can do more harm to the vessel to which it is stored than anything on which it is poured. Unforgiveness is a cancer that destroys the person who holds it. Amen. Forgiveness should not be withheld. Even when a person doesn't deserve it. Because you and I certainly did not deserve the forgiveness of God. He died for us while we were dead in our sins. He forgave us before we repented. And if we do not forgive others, we ourselves will not be forgiven. The Lord's prayer is forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive our trespassors or those that are our debtors. In other words, in the Lord's prayer, that famous prayer that we quote, there's an understanding that is, I ask God to forgive me, I am forgiving you. And as you ask God to forgive you, you are asking God to forgive me or the person who has wronged you. For when you hold a person at bay, when you hold them hostage to your unforgiveness, you are not destroying them, you are destroying yourself. You are trying to punish them for what they have done to you. But you are the person who is being punished because you cannot let go of it. And the cure for so many broken people is not just repentance, but it is forgiveness. It is letting go over and over sometimes the wrong that has been done to you and say, Lord, I will not revenge myself. I will turn it over to you. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It doesn't belong to us to try to judge another person or condemn another person. That is the business of God alone. And our responsibility is to repent of our sins and to forgive those who have wronged us. There's a story that Jesus told about forgiveness and forgiveness retracted in Matthew 18. The Apostle Peter asked Jesus, Lord, I want to be a really good Christian. I'm paraphrasing his words. So how many times do I need to forgive 
somebody who wrongs me. And then Peter came up with his own answer. He said, Lord, what about seven times? Wouldn't that be good? That would make me really, really holy. You know, because some people think somebody smites you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. That, some people interpret that, that if you get wronged once, after you're wronged twice, then they belong to you. Drink water while you're thinking about that. And that is not what that means. Scripture has to be compared with Scripture. When Peter says to Jesus, what about seven times? And Jesus looks back at him and says, no, what about 70 times seven? What about 490 times in a day? Or what about, as some people believe, and I do, times without number? What about that you don't count? Because what if God has counted how many times he's had to forgive us? Of things we've done wrong and thought and said and watched and did to other people. We would have passed seven. Seventy times seven. God has been merciful to us. And we must be merciful to other people. Now Jesus tells a story. Brother Jerry preached this story just maybe a couple years ago. I'm not sure. Jesus says there is a master. And he's got servants and he comes to reckon with them. Bring them into account. And they had all borrowed money from him. This one guy, he owes his master millions of dollars. That's the New Living Translation. A debt he cannot repay. More than he could ever pay back in ten lifetimes. He's a servant. That's his master. How did he get that deep in debt? Easy credit. The way to financial hell, right? So he's in debt. So the master says, we're going to sell him, sell his wife, sell his kids, Sell everything he owns until he pays the debt. Now, that's forever. He can never pay the debt back. But this man, this servant, who owed his master so much money, millions and millions of dollars, Jesus said he falls down and he begs his master. And he says, just be patient with me and I will pay it all. Now, I don't think he was lying, but he was lying. He can never pay that debt back. But he's begging for mercy. And mercy is what he got. His master was filled with pity and released him. And he didn't say pay it back later. He wiped his debt out. He completely forgave a debt of millions of dollars that he could never pay. Wow. What would you do if that had happened to you? How would you feel if you had been released from a debt that you could never pay? Well, I'll tell you how some people feel. I'll tell you what this man did. The man left. He left the master behind. He went over to a friend, a fellow servant, a peer, somebody on his own level. And that man owed him, New Living Translation, a few thousand dollars, a manageable debt, a debt he could have paid if given time. But the servant who had been forgiven so much he took his fellow servant by the neck. He choked him. He demanded instant payment on thousands of dollars. His fellow servant did what he had done. He begged for mercy. He said, give me a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it. And if given time, he could have. But that peer, that creditor would not wait. He had his fellow servant arrested thrown in jail until the debt 
could be paid in full. He removed his ability to even work and pay it back. But there were some other people standing around. And they saw what was done. How unmerciful that forgiven servant was. They went back to the king. They went back to the master. And they told him the entire story. And the Bible says Jesus is telling this. The king called the man that he had forgiven and said, You are an evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had with you? Then the angry king withdrew forgiveness. He sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid that debt in full. And then Jesus applies the story to us. He said, that is what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. I'm preaching today that there is a cure and there is a physician and we can hold him at bay if we do not repent and if we do not forgive. But today I am praying that a spirit of repentance and a spirit of forgiveness would flow into this house today that we would ask God to forgive us and that we would release those who have wronged us from the debt they owe us. Let's thank God for a minute right now for the debt he wiped out for us. Oh, hallelujah. There is a cure. There's a balm in Gilead. There's a physician there. But I asked Jeremiah's third question. Why? Why have you not recovered? Why are you still limping? Why are you still holding a grudge? Why? Why are you still struggling? When everything you need is available to you. You're saying, Pastor, are you telling me that if I just repent and forgive that everything's going to be perfect? Certainly not. But when you repent, you release the power of God in your life. When you forgive, you release the power of God in your life and the other person's life. But as long as you withhold forgiveness, as long as you refuse to repent, then God holds us back. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when you humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God, when you ask him to forgive you, and when you realize that you're not good enough to not forgive anyone else, then it releases healing and salvation in a right relationship for you. There is a cure. I knew a man whose name was Olin. He was an adult when I was a kid. I knew his family very well. His wife Margie served the Lord, but he did not. I did not know his story, but in his younger years, he did serve God. But evidently, he became very bitter. He was hurt by someone, I don't know who. And he had been away from God for decades. I think probably over 40 years as I try to think back. He was bitter towards someone. And that bitterness kept him away from God. Olin got cancer, contracted cancer. 
It was terminal. He was going to die. So his wife's pastor drove out of town, out to the little farm where they lived in their retirement years. Went into Ola's house, sat down with him, looked him straight in the eye, and said, you are going to die and go to hell because of unforgiveness. You're going to die, I don't know every word he said, you're going to die in your bitterness. After all these years, he never released that. He's lived away from God. He confronted him. He got right in his face like Nathan the prophet did to David the king. And when he did, Olin broke. And he repented and released the people who had offended him from being held hostage by his unforgiveness. He was renewed in the Holy Ghost. And when he died, he died saved. Because he refused to refuse the cure. He refused to die in his sins. There is a cure. And there is a physician. The gospel of Jesus Christ can set you free from your sins. And it all begins with repentance.